This afternoon, this evening, we're very glad to be able to be here. We're thankful to be able to open up our Bibles together and study God's Word and learn some things. Of course, tonight I've been tasked to speak to the single people. If you're not single, why, you can rest and sleep for a while. That's not true. That's not true. I'm a married person, married 40 years, thankful for every year, but I was single at one time, Uh, and so uh, we have a lot to say. Our topic is single Christians, and I think this topic very likely comes out of the uh, demographic changes that have taken place in the last 30 years. In 1990, there were about... uh, 29% of adults in the United States who were single, and uh, Pew Research calls them unpartnered. The other side will call them partnered. 29% of adults in 1990 were unpartnered people. By 2020, uh, the percentage had risen to 38% unpartnered adults in the United States, 38% of 258.3 million adults in the United States. Uh, results in about 98 million single, unpartnered adults in the United States. That's a huge percentage of adults who are single and unmarried. It's approximately 4 in 10 adults in the ages of 25 uh, through 54, prime ages of of marriage oftentimes, Uh, but 4 in 10 approximately are unmarried. And I I think the statistics among uh, Christians in the church Uh, might be not exactly the same as in the world, but last Sunday I taught this lesson at my home congregation, and as I looked out at the congregation, I thought, well, maybe it's not so different. Uh, There were some older people, there were some younger people, there was a mixture of people that were single in the congregation where I go to, and I thought, well, maybe it's not so different anyway, even in the church. Uh, The single population, as we talk about it, includes people who previously have been married. Some today who find themselves as Christians have been married in the past. And today, either because of divorce for one reason or another, or uh, the death of a spouse, they find themselves as single people in the church again. Uh, But according to the PewResearch.com, all the growth from 29 to 38%, all the growth in the un partnered population since 1990 has come from a rise in the numbers of people who have never been married. Now, there have always been those in society and in the church who have never married. But the point is that the number of never married is growing. I read one article that just encouraged, said, hey, churches need to be looking out there, out and looking for pastors, they called them, pastors who are not married. Of course, there's some oxymoron type stuff going in that, but, but uh, need to be looking for leadership who are not married, the article said. Uh, but I, what I want to do this evening is open our Bibles, and I want to start in the book of uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And I want to start here. In Genesis 1, verse 27, the Bible says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God's creation of mankind includes both male and female. And in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, 
The Bible says there, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. It was all good, that creation that included the male and the female. But then you get to Genesis chapter 2, and the writer backs up to fill in some of the details. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2, we learn that God rested from his work of creation on the seventh day. Verses 5 and 6, it had not yet rained, and the earth was watered by a mist from the ground. Verse 7, the man was created first from the dust of the ground. Verse 8, God planted a garden in the land of Eden. Verse 9, there was a tree of life in the garden. There was a river in verse 10 that parted into four different rivers. And uh, in verses 15 through 17, God put man in the garden to take care of the garden. Man could eat freely from every tree in the garden except for one. He was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good. Here's the one not good thing that we find in all of God's original creation. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. There's only one thing in the world that wasn't good, and that was man alone. But when we say not good, when the Bible says not good, the implication is not sin. It wasn't sin that God uh, had created the man alone. It wasn't sin for man to be alone. But the Bible says that it was not good. It just was not the ideal. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, after God had solved the problems of man's aloneness, he gave them a job. He said, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. And alone, man could not fulfill, he could not obey that command. And it looks like to me that it was always God's plan to create both man and woman to make up mankind. The two, uh, man and woman, they, they complete each other and they make the survival of the species possible. God brought them together and he created marriage. And so in the New Testament, Matthew 19 and verse 6, the Bible says that it was Jesus who said, What God has joined together, let not man separate. It was God who brought the one man and the woman together. It was God who planned the marriage of the man and the woman. Uh, it was God who planned and made marriage to be the relationship uh, to exist between a man and a woman. The, the relationship that fulfills his plan especially to populate the earth. Man alone was not good. And it seems to me that the same thing could have been said about the woman had the woman been the first to be created. God could have said, and I believe he would have said, it is not good for the woman to be alone as well. And to solve the problem of, uh, of aloneness, God created marriage. And Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says that marriage is honorable, honorable among all. I want to focus for a minute longer upon God's statement in Genesis 2 verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. And that can be true in several different ways. Uh, there is the aloneness factor itself, loneliness. There is the problem of no children. But I wanted to note again, Pew Research Study uh, talks about the economic problems of singleness. And to some extent, the economic uh, problem of singleness may stem from the first statistic. The first statistic is 
who's completed an, a bachelor's degree? Well, if you have a marriage partner, like 41%. If you don't have a marriage partner, it's 29%. They just note that as a difference between partnered and unpartnered people. But out of that, there are economic outcomes uh, for those who have a partner and those who don't. Uh, what about employment? Partnered, 82% of partnered people are employed. 75% of unpartnered are, are unemployed. Uh, median income, partnered, you got a wife or a husband, median income, 49,000. You don't have a wife, you don't have a husband, median income, about 35,000. Uh, what about financially vulnerable? Partnered, 37% of unpartnered people are financially vulnerable in the world. What about a partner? Only 26. There's a difference uh, in economic situation between the partnered and unpartnered people in the world. So without overlooking the God-planned and the honorable relationship between a man and a woman, what I want to do now is turn into the book of 1 Corinthians. This was really part of the task in the New Testament to turn into the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll begin to look at the scriptures there further. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul wrote, he said, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Marriage will, in the plan of God, and just read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. I'm not going to go through, those are not my verses tonight. I'm not going to talk about them. But marriage will, in the plan of God, involve physical intimacy between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And even though Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 says, it is not good that man should be alone, now Paul says, under inspiration, revelation from God, he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And the implication, at least in part, is that at least in certain circumstances, it is good for a man or a woman not to marry. The phrase, not to touch, involves touching physical intimacy within the realm of marriage. It is not good for a man, or it is good, he says, for a man not to touch a woman. And uh, it's good, at least in certain circumstances, for uh, a man or a woman not to marry. And so to live a single life. However, I want to note that the word good is not the word better, and it's not the word best. Paul does not say at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7 that it is better for a man to be alone. He doesn't say it's best for a man to be alone. He doesn't say any of that. He simply says it is good. And uh, the phrase, it is good, simply means that it is an acceptable situation in the eyes of God as God sees things in spite of the aloneness problem, in spite of the procreation problem, uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Marriage is not a command from God. But unmarried does imply that a man will not touch a woman. Uh, and vice versa. An unmarried woman will not touch physically intimate with a man. The intimate physical relationship uh, belongs within the boundaries of marriage. 
And if you're going to touch a member of the opposite sex, uh, you need to be married to them. All of this, I think, in spite of the culture that we live in. I think we've all seen the prevalence of sexual immorality among unmarried people in the world. We live in, in a culture, and much of the Western world, the culture sees celibacy and virginity as something to make fun of, as something strange that sees celibacy and virginity as a problem. But celibacy and virginity and the single life, the Bible says, is good. It's acceptable before God. This verse doesn't say that it's better, and it doesn't say that it's best in every situation, but it says that it's good. Now, if we go on to... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So if the choice is singleness and sexual immorality and the other side of the choice is marriage, singleness and sexual immorality, and marriage, the Bible says, let each man have his own wife. That's a command. Marriage is commanded if the only alternative is singleness and sexual immorality. Let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Uh, we note here that the Old Testament uh, gives rights and privileges within marriage. And within the New Testament, the rights and privileges of marriage between the man and the woman, the man and the woman stand on an equal footing. That's not necessarily true in the Old Testament, but it's true in the New Testament. And I say this not taking away from Ephesians chapter 5 and 23, where the Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife. And yet there are equal rights and privileges within uh, the bounds of marriage. So let's skip down to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 6. I said we would skip verses 3 through 5, and we're going to do that. We'll come back to 5 in a minute. But he says, but, this I, but I say this as a concession and not as a commandment. And this might be a good time just to say that marriage itself is not always a command. It was commanded in verse 2 if the only alternative was uh, singleness and sexual immorality. If that's true, then marriage is commanded. But it's not always a command for everyone in every situation. Marriage can be a concession and not a command. But in verse 6, it's not my belief that verse 6 is about marriage. I believe that verse 6 is further explanation of verse 5. So let's go back up to verse 5. He says, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's... The situation here is that uh, Christians, husband and wife, are not to deprive one another of the physical intimacy that's due one another within marriage. Uh, but they may do so by, by mutual consent for spiritual purposes. Fasting and prayer are named. They may not be the only spiritual purposes. But even that, he says, is a concession. You don't have to... Uh, be deprived. You don't have to uh, uh, withhold yourself, 
but it, you may. It's a concession within marriage. Uh, so let's go on to verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. It's evident from the context of this passage that Paul lived his life as a Christian as a single unmarried man, and that was acceptable to God. But Paul describes his ability to do so, to live as a single man, he describes it as a gift from God. Now, sometimes the word gift, and the word gift here is that word charis, uh, the typical word for gift, or the grace from God. Sometimes and often that word can refer to miraculous spiritual gifts. And oftentimes uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4, it's used as a miraculous to refer to miraculous spiritual gifts. But I believe that other times it may be used to refer to natural gifts that may be attained through heredity or developed through persistent practice. Romans 12 uh, verses 6 through 8 talk about gifts. And I think that at least some of the last ones named in that passage might be attained through natural uh, abilities that you develop and, and you have. So Paul talked about himself living single as a Christian man as a gift from God. And so here the gift to remain single without sexual immorality may be a gift. It may be a gift that has something to do with heredity. Heredity has something to do with the estrogen and testosterone and levels within men and women. And so there are things that may affect uh, your abilities in this area. It may be a gift that's attained through practice and through, through self-control. And I think Jesus referred to this in the book of Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 10 through 12, after talking about marriage, and some about divorce, the one exception for divorce for the Christian. Uh, and the disciples asked in verse 10, they said to him, or his disciples said to him, Matthew 19, verse 10, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. I think the disciples were confused here. I, don't think, I think they reached a, a conclusion. They drew an implication that wasn't at all, at all what Jesus was intending. They were confused. Uh, they found an implication where there was no implication intended, where there was no inference. They're confused. But Jesus responded in verses 11 and 12. He said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it, let him accept it. So the, Jesus talks about men who are eunuchs from their mother's womb, naturally, by birth, whatever, however that worked out, and that's not our subject tonight, but how they're naturally uh, born eunuchs. And he talks about some are made eunuchs by men. There's an artificial change sometimes. We might think of the Ethiopian man. There's an artificial change that can be uh, imposed upon one man by another man. Some are made eunuchs by men. And some, he says, have made themselves eunuchs. And I don't believe they perform some kind of surgery on themselves. I simply believe that by their own actions and by their own choice, 
They've made the choice in their own self-control to live without the intimacy of marriage. They made that choice. In the case back there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the ability to remain single without sexual immorality is spoken of as a gift from God. It's a positive thing. It's not my belief that God gives bad gifts. It's a positive thing to have a gift that says you can live single and without the intimacy of marriage. It's a gift. We understand Paul's words here back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, that uh, we should not then, it's a gift, we should not think less of, we should not feel sorry for those who are single. It's a gift from God. And oh, he says at the end of, of verse six, 7, he says, uh, each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, to be single. Some folks have the gift to be single. And another in that. Some folks have the gift to marry. It's a gift from God. Either way it goes. Both situations come from God. They're a gift. And we should not think less or feel sorry. You know, I've been married for 40 years. Should I think less of or feel sorry for someone who's not married? No, I shouldn't. If you're single and you recognize the joys of your single life, should you feel sorry for me who's been married for 40 years? No, you shouldn't. I have a gift, and you have a gift, and they're different. We respect one another's gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good, we have that word good again there, not better, not best, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Again, Paul was an unmarried man, and that was a good situation, he describes it there. It was acceptable to God. Everything was just fine. But Paul doesn't say that unmarried was generally better. That's not his point. He doesn't say that unmarried was generally best. He says it was good. And uh, there may be some differences of translation, but I think most of the reputable translations use this same word good for all of this. They don't say, uh, I don't think, I didn't read any that say better or best. It's always described as good, the ordinary, not the comparative, not the superlative. It's always described as good, the ordinary. Uh, if your gift was self-control, then you could say that maybe, and I try to be careful with that, maybe uh, singleness might be better for you. If you can't exercise self-control, if self-control is not your gift, then it is better. And, and the command was, back in verse 2, let them marry. Now in verses 10 through 16, he talks about uh, the married Christian. And the point in 10 through 16 is that if you're a married Christian, uh, don't try to get out of that marriage. Uh, singleness is not better for you. You're looking for something better. You're not quite happy in what you're... Singleness is not better. Often, you know, we want to make comparisons. Well, if singleness is not better, then marriage must be better. Or if marriage is not better, then singleness must be better. But there are no such generalizations concerning what is best or better. There are really too many factors in any one person's life 
to, enter in, to make just a general statement. It's better to be married or it's better to be single. Certainly one factor is your personal gifts from God. Whether we could say those gifts are spiritual or natural, we'll talk about that for us today, I believe that we do have natural gifts today. Uh, that yet, though they are natural, maybe providential, they are yet traced back to God and credited to God. And so today with natural, we don't have spiritual gifts. There's no apostles to lay hands on us. We're not going to get something, you know, if you're single, you're not going to have someone pray over you and give you the gift of singleness. But if you have a natural gift, hereditary or developed, uh, that can be a factor in deciding whether or not singleness or marriage is better or good. It's always good, but better or best for you. A second factor uh, that might be used to decide what's best or better for an individual in life is discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. In this passage, a virgin... Do I need to go on? Maybe I do. Let's go on. Uh, in this passage, a virgin here is a, is a young unmarried woman. But I just want to get the whole thing. What's true of a young unmarried woman in verses 25 and 26 is true of the man also. Look at the end of verse 26. He started off in 25 talking about a young unmarried woman, and he ends up, verse 26, talking about a man. How does that happen? You start talking about a woman, and you end up talking about a man. It's because what he's saying about a woman is true also of a man. And while... Paul could make no direct statement from Jesus. He could, or he could make no direct, there was no direct statement from Jesus that he could paraphrase as he had in 1 Corinthians 7 and 10. Yet as an apostle, his judgment was revealed judgment. It was inspired judgment. Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16 and verse 26, he says, this is good. And again, he doesn't say better. He doesn't say best. He says it's good because of the present distressed. distress. One of the questions that I was asked was, does this present distress refer to the destruction of Jerusalem? Now, I just want to say that 1 Corinthians, I believe, was written approximately in A.D. 56, about 14 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. Corinth was not in Judea. In fact, it was a rather long journey uh, by land or by sea away from Judea. And I don't believe that the present distress was the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, it's distant in time and it's distant in location. And uh, however, the persecution of Christians under Emperor Nero was at least beginning. And uh, maybe it was sporadic just at this time, but there it was. Persecution was coming upon Christians. The whole situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 25 and 26 reminds me of the world situation today. If you lived in the Ukraine today, 
Paul's words would strike home very close. As I understand it, I believe it was yesterday, uh, more than 3 million women and children, few men scattered in, but 3 million women and children uh, have departed from the Ukraine as refugees, leaving the fighting and the warfare going on there. Men, on the other hand, I believe by law are told to stay in the Ukraine. It's the law. Women and children can leave, men stay. And they have in mind that men will fight for the nation of Ukraine. Men stay, women and children leave. Now, uh, in that situation, Paul's words would strike very closely home to you. And certainly in that situation, uh, it would be wise to remain in an unmarried state. However, as far as I know, people in Romania and people in Poland, they're still marrying and they're still giving in marriage. And if you got farther and farther away, if you got to England, perhaps some of them are going, they're going to marry and they're going to be given in marriage. The, the farther in time you are away from the present distress, the farther in physical proximity you are, the, the less the admonition to remain single applies to your individual life. In difficult life circumstances, as a wisdom issue, and in spite of the aloneness problem, marriage is not a wise choice. But Paul continues on in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 27. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. And this is even in the present distress. Do you have a wife? Don't try to get out of having a wife. You're not going to be happier. In fact, if you can't be happy with a wife, you can't be happy without a wife. If you can't be happy without a wife, you can't be happy with a wife. So Paul just says in verse 27, Are you bound to a wife? Do you have a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Are you single? Do not seek a wife. And uh, that's kind of the rule that he sets there. Singleness is not better than marriage, even in the present distress. And if you're loosed from a wife, uh, you're single, you're not buried, it will not be better for you. You'll not be happier, in, even in the present distress, to take a wife. If you're not happy, uh, the grass is not greener on the other side. You're going to have to do something else to so rearrange your life to have some level of contentment and happiness in your life. Uh, while it's good because of the present distress, it's good for a man to remain as he is, uh, so life circumstances can influence what's better or best. But both singleness and marriage are always described as good. In verse 28, But even if you do marry, even in the present distress, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. And that's important to realize. Whatever the situation, marriage or singleness is not a sin. But then I noted the end of verse 28. Uh, Nevertheless, such... Those who do marry, nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. When I was given this topic, I expected to focus on, I, I thought they wanted me to, and later talking to Austin, I think that was, I was right. I expected to focus on the challenges and the obstacles that come with living as a single Christian. But what I see here in the end of verse 28 is that there are challenges and, and obstacles associated with being married as well. And just like there are problems and challenges 
associated with being single. You've got your problems and you think the other side is better off? You're wrong. Both sides have their ob obstacles and problems and challenges. All married couples have problems, arguments, and fights, and disagreements, and incompatibilities. And even in that present distress of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26, marriage is not a sin, and living single was not a sin, and both life situations are good and acceptable in the eyes of God. Let's continue, verses 29 through 31. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. And that's another one of my questions. What does that mean, the time is short? Time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. The time is short, he says. And I believe that's a general statement. Time is always in short supply. I don't think he's referring to the coming of the end of the world or the destruction of Jerusalem. I think time is always in short supply. There's never enough time. John, uh, James 4 and 4 describes time, describes life as a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Time and life are always in short supply. And in all things, we need to behave as if God comes first in our lives. Uh, God comes before your husband. God comes before your wife. God comes before your children. God comes before sorrows and problems. God comes before uh, financial gain. Making God first in our lives is the only way we can positively influence a husband or a wife or children for God. We cannot positively influence people that we love for God and for salvation by putting them first. It doesn't happen that way. God comes first. And in a marriage situation, when the husband realizes God's first, and the wife realizes God's first, Clint told us a story about, I think it was Eusebius this afternoon and his son. And they had it right, didn't they? God comes first. Clint will tell us a story about Eusebius sometime. <laughs> God comes first. And everything works out right when God comes first. That's what he's telling us here. In verse 29, he says, The form of the world, this world, is passing away. That's another one of my questions. The form, word form, comes from the Greek word schema, and it's translated fashion in the Old King James. But other than that, most modern translations are fairly uh, universal in translating it as form. And I believe that all that Paul is saying, after saying that time is short, is that he's saying the form of this world is passing away. He's building on time is short. This world is temporary. It's the present tense, and it was true just as much 2,000 years ago as it is today. In Matthew 24 and verse 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The world we live in is temporary, and all the things around us are temporary. And if we continued on into chapter 2, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, we read about more temporary things. First John 2, verse 17, John said, The world is passing away. It's the clear teaching of Scripture that this world and all its forms are temporary. They're passing away. I don't have time to finish 
I don't have time to hardly finish my lesson, but I don't have time to finish the chapter. Uh, but I do want to read verses 32 and 33 as well with you. Uh, but let's read them. But I want you to be without care. He was unmarried, cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He was married, cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Oh, that was another eye-opener as I thought about this. In this two verses, who's in the better situation? Remember, I thought I was supposed to write about the obstacles and challenges of living as a single Christian. But Paul actually presents the married person as the one with the greater difficulty and the single person as the one who's in a better situation to live a life that's focused on how he may please the Lord. Now, that's kind of an eye-opener for me. I mean, I've read this before, but I had to think about it here. I've been married 40 years, 65 years old. Sometimes I think about dying these days. I don't think it's anywhere near, but I think about it. And I'm hoping that if I go first between me and my wife, that I can be waiting on the other side of Jordan. There's a song. Uh, waiting for her when it's her time to come, knowing that we won't be married in heaven. But man, can I still hold hands with her? That's how I feel about being married. And, and so for me, thinking about what Paul says about living single has been an eye-opener. Living single gives you a chance to focus on God. Now, I don't want to push you one way or the other. I've had a pretty good helpmate and focuser in my life. But that's what Paul says. If you live single, you have an opportunity to focus on God. Another question given to me was, do Christians need to show, do single Christians need to show hospitality? Richard talked about that the other night. First Timothy 3 and 2, Titus 1 and 8. In life, the characteristics uh, in life characteristics, an elder has to be hospitable. Elders and overseers, they're, they're married men. It's often pointed out the, the elder's hospitality is tied to his wife's hospitality. And I think Richard demonstrated. Where are you, Richard, tonight? Uh, Richard demonstrated that. He said one time, I invited 40 people over, and Marty rose to the occasion. I think that's what he said, something like that. Our hospitality is tied to our wife in a great extent. But it goes farther than that. In Romans 12 and 13, speaking to Christians to, in general, he says they should be given to hospitality. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, he said, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Uh, but then you read verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received a gift. Now, we all have different opportunities. Gifts come to us by opportunities. Uh, there are a lot of unmarried Christians who open their homes. Uh, Austin opens his home. I stayed there last year. Wonderful. I know he's doing it again this year. Women that I've known, single women, open their homes to other women during gospel meetings. There are a lot of unmarried Christians who show hospitality. It's not only married people that show hospitality. It may be that two married people, they raise a family, they've got a few extra bedrooms now, and they can uh, be in a better position to practice hospitality. But the responsibility in life is always conditioned upon your ability and your opportunity. Galatians 6 and 10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Another question given to me was, uh, how do single women serve the Lord and the congregation effectively 
And what should they be doing specifically? I'm not going to try to tell women what they should be doing to serve the congregation tonight. Uh, my topic does concern single Christians, and I see in the question single women. But I think you might as well ask, what do single men do? Well, single men do everything married men do, except serve as elders. Women don't have that problem. Uh, single women can do everything married women can do. Remember, uh, being single is not a limitation. The Bible presents it as an opportunity. Single women can do everything married women can do. So if a, a woman in particular doesn't know what she can do, watch the other women. Join in and do what they do. Ask yourself what talents and gifts that you have at home or at work. Likely some of those will transfer over into the church. I've read that every family needs an unmarried aunt. My family's got one. She's terrific as an aunt. Not only to her actual nieces and nephews, but to other young children in the church as well. Ability and opportunity make it your responsibility. And single people need to be at the worship services. What can you do to help the church? Be at the worship services. Finally, uh, they gave me a question, and I've got less than five minutes, on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Does that play a role in what we're talking about? 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verse, verse, I'm going to read verses 12 through 15, although because of time, I should probably move right along, but we'll just start. Verses 12 through 15. 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 through 15. Paul says, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and self-control. Paul says, with inspiration, with revelation, uh, that there are some things that God does not permit. God does not permit, number one, a woman to teach. That's not my topic tonight. But women are allowed to teach privately and at home. Therefore, this must be a limited command. And it's limited in that uh, women are limited to not being able to teach in the public arena. Woman is not to be allowed to be a public Bible teacher. I think she can teach mathematics. She can teach computer science. She can teach what she knows but she is not to be a public Bible teacher. And then he says she is not permitted to have religious spiritual authority over a man. And Paul gives his reasoning behind this in verses 13 and 14 when he talks about Adam and Eve. Verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Here we have in particular Adam and Eve, the first man, and the first woman. And in spite of Eve's sin, there is something for us to know. In verse 15, he says, Nevertheless, she shall be saved. And I really see this as a corollary to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. I'm not going to read that. Go Hebrews 9, verse 15. Tells us that the redeeming sacrifice of Jesus was not only for us under the New Testament, it extended back to those under the first covenant as well. It extended back to those uh, under the law of Moses. 
That might leave you with another question. But what about those before the law of Moses? What about them? And so I believe that 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 takes us all the way back to Eve. All the way back to the first sinner. So the Bible says, nevertheless, she, who's she? I think it's Eve. She shall be saved. And that sounds absolute, but there's conditions. One of the conditions is, he says, she shall be saved in childbearing. Now, I don't believe that this means that every woman must have a child in order to be saved. Some have concluded that childbearing means homemaking. But childbearing is not exactly the same thing as homemaking either. And I believe there's something bigger here. It has always been God's plan to make salvation open to all people. But the Savior would have to be born of a woman. Eve, of all people, the first sinner, she can be saved. Maybe you never thought about what happened to Eve. I don't know what happened in eternity either, but what happened to her? She can be saved through the child through childbearing, which is a singular word. It doesn't talk about many children. It's a singular word. Uh, through the child Mary, finally, at just the right time in history, the child that Mary gave birth to. The birth, the life, and the death of Jesus is effective all the way back to Eve. Even Eve could be saved by the redeeming blood of Jesus. Now, there's another if, there's another condition in chapter 2, verse 15, 1 Timothy. If they, the pronoun changes. We're not talking about Eve anymore. He says, if they. And they in this passage is big enough uh, to include all women. It's bigger even than that. It's big enough to include all men. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's big enough. It can include everyone, all the way down to Eve, all the way up to the end of time and the end of the world. It's big enough to, for all people. I don't believe that 1 Timothy chapter 2 is about women's roles or men's roles. I believe it's about salvation. Even in the fact, face of blatant sin extends all the way back to the first sinner in the whole world through childbearing, not Childbearing is not plural, it's singular, and it works through the particular birth of Jesus, which ultimately led to his death. If they, these conditions now apply to women and to all men everywhere. All women and all women everywhere and in all time can be saved. They don't all live under the same covenant from God in all time, but according to whatever covenant and whatever commands that they've been given by God, if they live in faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and that's true for all time. In faith, and faith includes obedience. And in love, and love includes obedience. I'm almost done. In holiness, a life separated to the purpose of God with self-control, rejecting the uh, flesh as the ruling power in their life and letting a willing spirit, small s, uh, lead them to obey God in their lives. 
whatever covenant they're on, whatever time, whatever commands that they have from God, these are the characteristics that allow us to be saved by the blood sacrifice of Jesus. So does 1 Timothy 2 and 15 play into the topic of single Christian women? I don't think so especially. Not in any way different than it applies to any other person living in the world. God bless us and uh, all of us, single and married. Thank you very much.